But I say to you who are willing to hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on the cheek, offer the other one as well. If someone takes your coat, don't withhold your shirt either. Give to everyone who asks and don't demand your things back from those who take them. Treat people in the same way that you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, why should you be commended? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, why should you be commended? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, why should you be commended? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be paid back in full. Instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. If you do, you will have a great reward. You will be acting the way children of the Most High act, for he is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good portion, packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing, will fall into your lap. Thanks, Holly. Will you all pray with me? Lord Jesus, we give you thanks um, for your word um, that are uh, often hard words. Um, Prepare our hearts and our minds um, that we might receive uh, what you are saying to us. Uh, We give you thanks for all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was summer 1971, and it was dripping hot as Durham summers get. And a guy named Bill Riddick uh, had a clever idea. He was going to put together a working group called a 10-day share it. Uh, Even the name of this was kind of a distress signal. It was called the SOS, Save Our Schools. And I, I think the thought was desperate times call for even more desperate measures. You probably know some of this story. Uh, He called up Ann Atwater, who was a prominent black activist, and he asked her to co-chair this group. And alongside of her, he recruited C.P. Ellis, Claiborne Ellis. He was the lead of the local chapter. I don't know if they have chapters of the Ku Klux Klan. To say he hated her would be an understatement. And also not really a complete picture, because she also hated him for the violence and the injustice that his leadership, if you could call it that, was perpetuating for her community. As the popular book and later the film adaptation puts it, they were the quote unquote best of enemies. This week I I watched back uh, a short documentary about them uh, that was on PBS in like 2002. It's called An Unlikely Friendship. It's only about a half an hour. You can rent it cheaply. I would recommend it. It's really good. It features interviews and imagery from the Durham that was and kind of still is. Like It's very much a familiar place for all the changes that have happened. And the dock opened um, in Anne's church, and everyone is singing and dressed up and clapping and waving fans. And she testifies in a voiceover that it was that setting, the people of Mount Calvary United Church of Christ, that, she says, taught her how to be able to love. 
it was church. And it's just, I mean, I'm sure that's a great church, but it's also just a church, just a little old church, like kind of like this, that taught her how to be able to love. And in, interspersed with that, those words and that past and her present was C.P. Ellis's memory and, and, and some of the, the images from around Durham. And his memory was the first time he ever said the N-word out loud. And it was as a boy, and he was growing up in Durham, and they had a regular Sandlot football game where the white boys would play the black boys from across the tracks. And on a Sunday afternoon, the black boys happened to win, and he said that word as a slur. And then he also remembered the sort of despair and the resentment that led him to seek the fellowship, or if we're really being honest, like the gang, <laughs> of the clan, and how his initiation was to kneel at the flaming cross. Uh, upon reflection, he remembered it, that it was not really actually even that ritual for how highly ritualized it was. He, he didn't see that as the time when he first joined the clan. He actually saw it on that afternoon as a boy in the sandlot as the day that he joined the clan. Uh, I was just struck with how different these Christian formations or malformations were functioning for them and how they were being formed. Their communities couldn't have had more opposite aims, but there was a cross at both. And, and they, they shared also geography. They shared common, to an extent, creeds. It's a very different ends. So this invitation was extended, and Anne accepted the invitation to team up. And I think her acceptance was, out, was reticent, but it was also kind of out of spite. She says in the thing, I didn't want to be seen as someone who was afraid of that guy. Uh, anyone being afraid is of like a terrorist wearing bedsheets. So over the course of their long days of working for a common goal, there actually was a breakthrough. There was trust that began to form in a common humanity that was able to be seen by their common care for kids. I was struck by that song that we sang, when I look into the face of my enemy, I see a sister or a brother. That, that sounds so impossible to even imagine. And some, sometime over this, this convening, they were able to, to begin to see not their enemy sitting across, but a sister, a, a brother. They, they, were, they were doing work over a week and a half, and, and fittingly, all this work was happening inside of a room on the NC Mutual Life Building that you guys have probably seen. It's great, yeah. Um, sometimes things get written in the sky, right? They were both changed. Anne's anger needed to subside. Trust and forgiveness needed to be earned and given and formed and reformed, but CP had to become a new creature. And ultimately, he turned his clan card in, and he was rejected by the same quote-unquote community that he once led. Even until their eventual deaths, they continued to nurture this unlikely friendship, and all the while, Anne, tender through her fiery demeanor, was able to recognize, and I think this is part of the seeing, where uh, initially you can't see a brother or a sister in an enemy, and now 
when you can begin to see that, you start to see all sorts of other things in them. You start to see their pain and their struggle. And so she, even though Anne's always fiery, she was kind of tender in the video when she says, I was able to recognize that in becoming my friend, CP had lost a lot. CP had lost a lot. This is a sort of compassion that, that maybe hadn't existed before that share it. The point in telling this story of Durham's like most famous enemies turned friends, I mean, this is like 50, 60 years ago, um, and we're still talking about it. The point in talking about this is not necessarily even that these are extraordinary people. In some sense, each of them came to the table as a pretty normal person for their time in 1971, but what happened to them might might give us like a peek into a more modern and local um, example, like a small window for possibility and abundance that Jesus opens up for us in our passage today. In our passage, Jesus continues to speak from that level place that Brody expounded last Sunday, the Sermon on the Plain. And he blesses those on the underside and he pities the fools and their Pride and selfishness, that's the Mr. T standard version. Uh, pities the fools in their pride and selfishness and violence. Um, they think that that's all there really is or should be. And he continues, Jesus does, not with a grocery list of things to do, but with a dynamic description of the new world that Jesus is bringing into our old world and what that would look like as it impinges upon us, as it comes to us. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And if there's a kingdom coming, there, of course, are some things that we can and should do that would make us fit better in this sort of strange kingdom. This is a place where, you know, the old world was characterized by greed and comfort of the rich, and the new one might be characterized by generosity and resistance. If the old world was a place for superficial happiness and distraction, the new one is measured by hard-won joy in and through suffering and adversity and with those who suffer. If the old world was about glad-handing and trophies, the new one is measured by the truth that was sometimes hard to hear and often is unpopular. You see, this is a good measure of this new world, and it might actually win you enemies. Jesus' life and death prove that this new way might win you enemies. Jesus wasn't killed for being a nice guy. The powers and principalities are working hard through real people to erase Jesus for speaking and embodying this kind of good news. So how is it that good news might win you enemies, how is it that it might be received as a threat? Just kind of like a side and related uh, note when I'm, when I'm thinking about this. I remember back in uh, the first time I studied in an Old Testament class, and we were reading Psalms, and we are reading all of those Psalms about enemies, like the one we said today together, Psalm 37, or like Psalm 35 uh, is a David Psalm. It says, Lord, argue with those who argue with me. Fight those who fight against me. Grab a shield and armor. Stand up and help me. Use your spear and axe against those who are out to hurt me. I, say to me, I am your salvation. 
and goes on and on and on. These are psalms of imprecation and protection. And to be honest, they sounded so weird to me, and I didn't know that I could say them. Or I, I was like, who are my enemies? And, and that was maybe the first time I began to grapple with, I don't know if I have enemies. And, and, and so a lot of this conversation is predicated on the fact that, that you do have enemies or you are someone's enemy. And some of that accounting needs to happen. And so maybe your homework, maybe all of our homework, we can go home and journal, make two columns, and start listing your enemies. And that maybe might be a good start to help us start praying for these invisible enemies that we sometimes don't fool ourselves into thinking we don't have, right? Uh, also, the column where you might be their enemies, it might help you um, love someone in a way that you haven't before. So that's just a little sidebar, is it is important to realize that we have or are enemies, right? And I think this is important because Jesus lives in a world with enemies, Jesus anticipates this sort of opposition, this sort of hatred. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Turn your cheek and offer the other one. Give your coat and your shirt. Again, Jesus, don't go, don't go to Jesus if you're looking for good advice. Jesus is not offering good advice. This is actually terrible advice <laughs> if things are the way they are. If how and what things are is all there is, our enemies deserve none of our love and every bit of our violence and our hatred that we can return to them. If this world is a zero-sum game, then a curse should get escalated every time. Turn the cheek, give the shirt off my back. That wouldn't, wouldn't that just leave me like bruised and naked? Jesus is offering a recipe for humiliation. Have we thought all of this through Jesus? But what if there's more? What if there's always more than meets the eye? What if there's more going on like under the surface that we can't see at any given time? What if there's more going on in our own hearts and in the hearts of those that we encounter who are locked in this kind of old world rat race? What if there is always more, even more cheeks and shirts and grace? What if the good news that Jesus is bringing, the kingdom that has become and will come in full, means more? What if it just means that there's always more? This is the sort of thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to instill in these early Christian communities. Like we read about Corinth and Galatia, and they're so far away and, and, and so like locked in this thus saith the Lord mode for us that we don't realize that these are letters to communities that are struggling to live into this moreness. He's talking about, in Corinth, he's talking about uh, these people that are still have the old way captivating their imaginations and their behaviors. The rich are hogging up all the food and sending others away malnourished, even by the very body and blood of Jesus. Or Galatia, like where being crucified and raised with Christ and bearing the fruit of the Spirit are now the markers of life with God in a community. 
He's trying to remind them. He's telling them they are bewitched by other ways of doing this. He's trying to tell them that there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. They are all one in Christ Jesus and should be at the same table together. Real communities struggling with this moreness that is just available to them if they will live into it. So this is what was going on at that 1971 Sherat against all odds, two people about as diametrically opposed as you could be come to the table and at some point realize that there was more than they had seen or known about each other. This more would require a whole lot from them. From Anne, it would require more space. That she would make space from the fear and anger that often shrinks our space. And again, I don't blame her for being mad and fearful. You might consider these things second nature, but that's the old way. It, the new way requires courage, and for her it required her social capital to make space and to hold back members of her community from destroying the clan robes that CP brought to display. Of course, like her, her people had never seen this sort of thing up close and lived to tell about it, so you might excuse them, but maybe when that happened, when she opened up that sort of space, there was like an unmasking, literally and figuratively. That was occurring. They, they could see that the emperor had no clothes or that the clothes that these guys were wearing were just made out of cotton. They were just people wearing clothes, you know? From CP, it would require even, even more, like more, more. Like, Anne and CP's repentance was not symmetrical <laughs> in this. CP needed to be born again, again, right? His repentance would gain him a friend in Anne, but it would lose him his whole previous community. It would threaten his life and his livelihood, but sometimes embracing the good news of Jesus um, uh, that brings, that is repentance, that is abundance, brings all sorts of bad news from the old ways of scarcity. Some of CP's anger was built on this like grievous, grievance myth that quote, the blacks were taking over Durham. That's what, he, that's what he said made him so mad. We never see this sort of fear mobilized these days. That was like an old school trick. That would never work. We're too smart to fall for something so silly. But you see, when CP sat down in the same room and realized that rather than enemies with opposing interests, they were actually both members of poor white and poor black communities of Durham who both wanted the same thing for their kids. And when Jonathan Wilson Hargrove was here talking about Anne, you can go back and listen to that. He said Anne's main strategy was just to figure out what you wanted and help you get it and halfway there bring in what she wanted. It's very strategic. It's very pragmatic, right? And that was what was happening. They both realized that they were not enemies opposite of each other, but friends alongside of each other, or they could be. They were able to unite in their struggle and recognize abundance and possibility and hope where there had once been scarcity and hostility and despair. I'm guilty. We're all guilty of this sort of internalized logic of our world. It's, kind of, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, 
when the Fed or when Reddit tells you there is going to be a recession, they can communicate that recession into being, and we do that too. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy of scarcity. It's the other side of the prosperity gospel, you know, name it and claim it. This is like naming that there won't be enough and therefore claiming that kind of scarcity that there isn't enough. But Jesus' good news, the, the gospel that Jesus bears in his body, the good news that we participate in every week around this table is that there's enough. There's, there will be enough. There's more than enough. That's the logic of this table is a two fish and five loaves logic. Blessed, broken, and given. And it creates a feast with baskets full of leftovers. It's all predicated on the gifts of God for the people of God. The gifts of God for the people of God. Lewis Hyde says that gift revives the soul. Gift revives the soul. And C.P. and Anne's souls were revived by giving and receiving the gift of forgiveness. In so doing, they were able to move from that language of rival to the language of friend and even beyond friend, kin, siblings. That's why Jesus says, instead, love your enemies, do good, and lend expecting nothing in return. But if you do, you will have a great reward. You will by acting. Um, you, you will be by acting the way uh, children of the Most High act. For He is kind to ungrateful and wicked people. Be compassionate. Show mercy, just because your Father is compassionate and shows mercy. This is this this is also what like I, I love I love seeing what Jesus is saying and and then stepping a few years down the road and seeing how it's applying. Uh, with Paul and real Christian communities on the ground. This is what's happening in Philemon. This is kind of a deep cut. If you don't know Philemon, you can, you can read the whole thing. There's not even chapters uh, in one sitting. But it, it, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing uh, little book um, in, the, in the Bible, a letter really. And it's from Paul to this uh, slave master. And the like, regarding line of the email is, your runaway slave, Onesimus. Uh, and Onesimus means handy, and long story short, Paul will like kind of, kind of, kind of um, like get some leverage, but he will not coerce uh, Philemon into doing anything. But the, the key line is this guy that you used to only see for what he would do for you, Onesimus's name means handy, like, you, you will take this guy that used to be handy for you, and you will receive him, not only as a friend, or not only as a slave, but as a brother, as a sibling. That's what's happening, and that's what happened to Anne and to CP. They moved from enemy to friend to kin. You see, Jesus saying, it's easy to love those who are easy to love. Like, it's easy to love uh, people who do something for you. In some sense, we're all hardwired to at least do that. It doesn't require a whole lot from us, and heck, most of the time we get something out of it, but loving enemies, those who aren't easy to love, those who resist our love, those who might even want to hurt us, that is God-level love. That's the sort of love that could blow up in our face at any time. It is dangerous love. That's the sort of love that doesn't feel possible. It's the sort of love that we might just need a miracle for it to happen. 
And that's exactly the sort of love that God shows us. A miraculous love. A love that is dangerous and surprising. This is the love from, from Romans 5, that while we were still weak, at just the right moment, Jesus died for ungodly people. He says, it isn't often that someone will die for a righteous person, though maybe someone would die for a good person. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now we have been made righteous by his blood, and we can be even more certain that we will be saved from God's wrath through him if we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. Again, if we didn't get it the first two times, while we were still enemies, now we have been reconciled how much more certain that we will be saved by his life. And not only that, we even take pride in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, one uh, through whom we now have a restored relationship with God. While we were still weak, sinners, enemies of God, Christ died for us. God gave a gift. We've been restored in relationship with God. We've been remade into the family of God, brothers and sisters. And when we tap into this sort of love, when we receive it, when we offer it, when we traffic in it, when we let it rewire the logic of our lives, we show like a family resemblance. We show a sort of God-like love, the, the, the love that our Father shows and I think this, I think this cashes out. I, I think it filters out in, like, maybe big ways, like ways that 50 years from now maybe they'll be talking about and make a movie about starring Taraji P. Henson and Sam Rockwell. But I think it also means something for, like, the normal stuff of our everyday lives. That, that, that we learn in little things how to show compassion how to show mercy the way that our Father shows mercy. Jesus shifts into like the application portion of his sermon on the plane. He says, this means don't judge, don't condemn, don't forgive, give. This is ridiculously practical advice. Maybe. Just as turning your other cheek and stripping naked to your oppressor doesn't guarantee safety, giving space and giving gener generously doesn't guarantee that things are going to work out. Just because you don't judge, you don't condemn, you forgive and you give doesn't mean that things are going to work. But that shouldn't stop us. That shouldn't stop us as we're invited into this new world with different measures, different metrics of what actually works, what what success actually means. Packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing. That's the measure of this new reality. Packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing. This is the language of the market in Jesus' time, but what I picture is the vocabulary of the gratuity of an ice cream shop on summer vacation in Carolina Beach, right? Packed down, firmly shaken, and overflowing. This is when you find the scooper with the most ripped forearms. You order that two-scoop waffle cone, and they take it as a suggestion and a challenge to try to pack like a whole half gallon into that cone. 
And it is like more than the cone can even handle. It is more than you can handle, well maybe. But it's exactly that sort of overflowing, surprising, and kind of insane generosity <laughs> that begets a generous tip, even from stingy people. The portion you give will determine the portion that you will get in return. You can see, bang, like a whole new economy of abundance happens across a freezer case. The gift is off and running. That's, that's what the invitation is. There's always an invitation. Bill Riddick's share it invitation, Jesus's invitation, the invitation is, will you traffic in this system of good measurement, grace, and purpose, and forgiveness, and reconciliation, and family? Like, the invitation is, will you receive that today? Maybe for the first time, maybe for the 1,000th and first time, will you receive this? We need to receive it. We need to preach that to ourselves and each other all the time that there's more. Will you take off running with that gift and pay it forward? Today, this week, this afternoon, when you know the afterburn of church time is over and like your roommate or your spouse or your kid starts to annoy you, will you be merciful as God is merciful? <laughs> will you live into this new world of God's kingdom that is measured in this new way? Just as Bill's invitation to Ann and CP wasn't a one-time invitation, God's invitations aren't one-time invitations to us either. Maybe you answered that one-time invitation a long time ago. That's great. But this is an invitation to lose and to gain again and again. It's an invitation to have your life turned upside down, maybe again and again. It is an invitation to spend the rest of your life and on into eternity, which has already started, working with God and being made new and working to make new inside of this kingdom and this kinship that is made possible by God's love and grace. Will you all pray with me? Lord, make us good recipients of your invitation, of your grace, of your mercy. Help, help us not um, uh, be the bottlenecks for your grace in this world. Uh, and Lord, like, like Anne said, uh, teach us here in this community, this church community, to better be able to love. Uh, thanks for the people you put in our lives. Uh, thanks even for our enemies and those who are hard to love. Thanks especially for our friends, our family, our sisters and our brothers in Christ that show us how to love. And thanks for being with us just at the right time while we were still sinners. Thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.